Well, our Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident. And you know those words as good as I do. And the rights that we have are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we do that pretty well. We pursue happiness. And I think everybody agrees that they would like to pursue happiness. And you know, Jesus taught us that we ought to be happy. Do you know his, his best known sermon? Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He begins it talking about happiness. The words he uses are the words that's translated into English. The old King James and some of the, the older translations says, Blessed. Blessed are the, blessed are the. But the word is the same thing as happy. Happy are, and some of the more modern translations translate that. Happy are the poor. Happy are the, uh, those who are persecuted. They're, they're, they're happy. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You know, this, this means that Jesus wants to give us a life that's overflowing, that's overspilling all the time, bubbling with, with happiness, with joy and happiness, abundant life, joy-filled life, victorious life, triumphant life. It's what Jesus has for us. In John 15, 11, he says, These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Can we take that literally? Is that what Jesus wants from us? Does it mean the joy and the peace and the happiness and the victory that Jesus had that surpasses anything that we can see in this world that Jesus is saying, I give you this joy. I want you to have this joy so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be as full as my joy. Jesus said, I don't want you just to know the words of happiness. I want you to experience the music of happiness. Isn't that a beautiful statement? The music of happiness. Unfortunately, as we pursue happiness, we get bogged. We get bogged down. I think there are five traps that, that get a hold of us that keep us from the kind of joy that Jesus is talking about. The, the first one I call the if I could just have trap. I would be happy if I could just have. And you, you, know, you can put anything you want to after the have, but we have the idea that you know, there's something that's missing that I can't find happiness in Jesus. Time Magazine did a story a couple of years back on the science of happiness. And they did some research about people who researched happiness and, and researched Americans' ideas about happiness. And what they discovered is that many Americans believe that money and happiness are connected 
You can't get away from it. The more money you have, the more you will be happy. But their research discovered that once you've got enough money to not be in poverty, in other words, there, there is a case that you know, if you're in poverty and you get out of poverty, that you're, you're, you're more happy. But once you get out of poverty, having more money does not lead to more happiness. They don't go together, hand in hand. You know what? Uh, yeah, I, I can skip that part, but what? <laughs> when we say, if I could just have, we could be absolutely satisfied with what we have until we see what somebody else has. You know, I, I'm really happy with my Chevy until I see somebody with a Lexus, you know, and it's so much nicer than my Chevy. I wish I, if I, if I could just have one of those, I would be happy. And it's not just money, you know. If I could just have more leisure time, if I could have status, if, if I could have one more possession, these are the, I have traps. If I, if I could just have traps. You know, so, so if you think your happiness depends on something you don't have, and if you could just have it, you would be happy, that's a trap. Another trap I call, it feels good trap. If it feels good, do it. You'll be happy. The third one, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these traps because that's not where I want to go, is if I could just solve this problem trap. We have a problem and, and we think we could really be happy if we could just solve this problem. And you know what happens when you do? You get another one. You know, that doesn't bring happiness. Trying to be happy by resolving something in the past. Or you can say the same thing, I call it a fourth one, it's kind of the same thing, was I, if I could just get over this one weakness, I just have this one habit, I just have this one weakness, this one thing I can't do, if I could just get over that, I would be happy. And then, well, I'll just force myself to be happy. That's the fifth trap. I'll just force myself to be I'm going to be happy no matter what you know when when the person gets sick and they start talking about not feeling well you take your hand and you put it on their forehead and what are you checking for temperature <laughs> now, you check your pulse to see if they're alive you check their temperature to see if they're sick you know, and if somebody's sick, if, if you know, you, you take that and you put in a thermometer and uh, it's 102, you know there's an illness there of some kind, an infection or a problem. Wouldn't it be good if we had a spiritual thermometer? You know, we just take it and find some place to stick it in your spirit and figure out what was wrong with you or that you were spiritually sick. 
But you know, I think there are some symptoms that would tell us there's a problem with our spiritual condition. And if there's a problem in our spiritual condition, we're not happy. We won't be happy. We won't have the kind of joy that Jesus offers. Um, and once again, you know, there's, these are some of the ones that I think they are. If, if you would describe yourself as continually unhappy, you don't have the joy of Jesus. Um, if there's a conflict in your life with family or with Christian brothers and sisters and it bothers you and you just can't deal with it, that's an that's a indication that there's a, a um, spiritual problem. Now, not always because, you know, uh, Jesus said, in as far as it lies with you, you know, there's sometimes that people just cause conflict. Are there people that you hate or that you have bitterness or resentment for? You know, a lot of times people think that if they, if they hate some people and love other people, that they can be okay. But Scripture teaches, James teaches us, that you can't have salt water and fresh water in the same fountain. You can't have love and joy. You can't have love and hate in the same heart. They don't exist in the same heart. And if you would just think about the happiest people you know, happiest people you know, they probably love their spouse, love their children, but you could also say you can't find anybody that they hate. They don't hate anybody. I think a couple of people, a couple of uh, deacons that I worked with in the past, one in Moab and, and uh, one in Moriarty, that uh, they just never had a bad thing to say about anybody. And they'd been burned pretty bad. The one in Moab, uh, they'd had a pastor that lied to them, uh, got them into deep financial trouble. They almost lost their building because the pastor was hiding things from them. And, uh, you know, they discovered it finally, and he left, and, and the church made its way out of it. And then one day, we got a call from the home mission board wanting a reference on that pastor. And I said to the guy that called, I said, well, you know, I can't give that reference because everything I know is just hearsay, but I know somebody who could. And so I went to, to the man that I'm talking about, the happy guy. I went to him and I said, Brother Buell, this guy's going to call you from the home mission board. And he's going to ask you about Pastor So-and-so. Now listen to me. I know you never like to say anything bad about anybody, but you need to take the home, you need to tell the home mission board the truth. You don't have to be ugly, but tell them the truth. Tell them what happened. He looked at me and he says, Well, Pastor, <laughs> he says, I don't know. He says, I'll do the best I can, you know, because he just doesn't say anything bad about anybody. You can't hate folks. 
And those things are all indication that there, there's something wrong. So, so what I want us to do over the next, and we will take five weeks, okay? I'm not going to do it all today. Over the next five weeks, I want us to, to look at happiness. Spiritual happiness. Where does it come from? How do we get it? We need to avoid the happiness traps and learn how to be happy. There are a lot of people who think that happiness is just something that just has to happen to you. That you just find it. Suddenly something's going to happen in your life and you're happy. Uh, it doesn't happen that way. One of these days I'm going to win the lottery and then I'll be happy. But you know, the truth is, is if, if you're poor and unhappy and you get a lot of money, you're going to be rich and unhappy. It does, that doesn't change it. It doesn't change things. Some people think that God is responsible for happiness and he just pours it out where he will. And if you'll pray enough and hard enough, he's going to pour some happiness out on you and you'll be happy. But I... You're half right. God is in charge of happiness. But there are some principles that he has given us that he expects us to follow in order to receive his joy. You know, a farmer depends on water for his crops to grow. And in a lot of places where they don't irrigate, they... You know, they look out at the sky every morning and they pray to God that he would bring water. But God supplies the rain for the crops. But the farmer prepares the crops for the rain. He doesn't just sit around and say, well, God, you know, there's a field. I need some corn in it. He gets it all ready and then God waters the corn. And then one other thing. Some people take the Declaration of Independence too literally. They think you find happiness by pursuing happiness. Their number one goal in life is the pursuit of happiness. And no matter how hard they pursue it, it eludes them. Happiness comes when you spend your life on something else. And happiness is the result. And so I want to talk about some of those four or five principles for happiness. Uh, I, th I think I'm going to do five keys to happiness over these next uh, five weeks or over the next five weeks I'm, I'm with you. And the first one I want to address is found in 2 Corinthians 12. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. 2 Corinthians 12. I'm going to start reading with verse 6. Let's stand as we read God's Word. I used to always make people stand up when we read the Word of God. I don't know when I quit. You guys made me quit. Second Corinthians 12, beginning with verse 6. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish. For I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this 
so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Father, add your blessing to the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here's, here's the first principle. Life is like a river. It's constantly moving. You get up every day to new possibilities. Things change. You better get used to it. Nothing stays the same. You know, when I go to, uh, down to Aztec to, to visit my folks, there's a, there's a road in Aztec that uh, where the two highways come together, the, the old highway across the old bridge and the new highway across the new bridge. I call it the, you know, when I say that, understand that I'm talking about new 50 years ago, okay? But when I was in high school, when I was growing up 55 and so years ago and driving in Aztec, those two roads met together just before the new bridge. The bridge was a one-way bridge, so as you were coming down from Aztec, from the town, you had to go around the, a curve, because they didn't let you go across the old bridge uh, that direction, and you came up to a place and you met the new highway where there was a stop sign. And you pulled up there and stopped, and you looked both directions, and off you went, okay? Well, at some point in the last 50 years, they took that stop sign out and made it a stoplight. And we'd be going to Aztec and my kids would be in the car and I'd be driving and we'd turn there at Main Street and go down that road and I'd turn around, I'd make that turn, I'd come up to the highway, I'd look both directions and I'd go. And my kids say, Dad, you ran a red light! Huh? Oh yeah. You know, things change. Things aren't always the same. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how many times over the years I've run that light. It's been a while, I think, now. I think I've learned that it's, that it's changed. But, you know, that, that's not the only thing that changes. You know, I, I looked down there. I was down there the other day. You know, it's not the same place. My parents live in the same place they lived in when I was in high school. I mean, the same house. But man, it's not the same place. You know, there's houses where we used to play. There's a whole subdivision where we used to have our horses. Uh, you know, it, the, the whole thing is different. Uh, people across the street, mom was telling me about 
the lady across the street, she had a son that was two or three years younger than, than we were. You know, he's, he's passed away. Uh, you know, the, the neighbors are different. The lady catty corner across the street was my uh, math teacher's wife. And, uh, you know, they, she's still there, but she, everything's different. Everything changes. And how we respond to change affects our happiness. So this is the first, first principle I, I want to deal with. I call it adjustment. You have to learn to adjust to change because change is going to happen. Paul said, There was put into my life as a tool of the evil one of Satan himself, a thorn in the flesh. That word that's translated thorn literally could be translated a stake. There was a stake driven into my flesh that caused great pain and suffering. And I cried out loud to the Lord and I said, God, remove this from me. I cannot bear it. I cannot bear it. And God didn't do anything. And so he says, I cried out again. And then I cried out a third time, God, oh great and good God, whom I serve as a missionary, suffering for you, beaten for you, shipwrecked for you. How could you let this happen to me? Remove it, Lord. Please, Lord, remove it. He says, and every time I prayed and everything I tried to do to remove that thorn, I tried to get it out. I could not get it out. I prayed to God and to remove it, and he did not. So what did I do? Paul says, I adjusted. I decide that God is going to leave it there. I would live with it. I would adjust to it and I would be happy with it. And I would find victory over it. Therefore, he says, I glory in my infirmity, in my weakness. I find strength in my weakness and I have discovered that I can be happy even with the thorn in my flesh now that's Paul's testimony so let's apply it you have something that's keeping you from happiness you have something that's happened to you that's making you miserable you have something that's trying to rob you of your joy and your happiness and you may say I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed but God hasn't done anything about it. So what do you do? Well, if you want to be happy, you adjust. You say, well, God's not going to do anything about it. Or probably what you'd say is, God's not going to do what I want him to do about it. So I just need to adjust to it. Now I'm not going to talk about Paul's thorn. I don't know what it was. Some say it was poor eyesight. Some say that he was, uh, you know, they, they point to some of the things that he writes. Some say that he had an illness like malaria or epilepsy. Some even think that it was a broken relationship, uh, maybe even a broken relationship with a wife. And there are a lot of other suggestions, and it's an interesting study to look at all of those. But the truth is, is that the Holy Spirit chose not to tell us what it was. And I think there was a reason for it because 
if we looked at that and said that was Paul's problem, then I could say, well, but that's not my problem. My problem's different. And so he gives us this real general thing that says whatever it is in your life that's keeping you from the joy that Jesus talked about, from the abundance life that Christ has promised us, whatever it is, God wants you to adjust to it. That's why he leaves it there. And so perhaps someday he'll choose to remove it, but for now you just need to adjust. Well, how do I do that? Thanks for asking. I'm going to tell you. Here's how you do it. Guess how many things I found to tell you. There's three of them. Number one, you need to learn to trust the providence of God. Now, what do I mean by the providence of God? The providence of God is that God's in charge. There's nothing that happens outside of what God allows to happen. Now, that's not just a simplistic answer. It's for real. This, this is what Paul said. Paul says, I was given this thorn in the flesh, but he didn't say, why does this happen to me? Or, or why, God, why did you do this? Instead of letting it drive him to depression, it drove him to God. He went to God and he prayed for it. He prayed about it, and, that, and that's fine. And when God didn't answer, he prayed again. He prayed three times, he says, that the Lord would remove it. Continuing to pray fervently that God would deliver him. Because Paul had confidence in God. Paul believed in God. Paul believed that God could make a difference. He trusted him. This is the same man, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, was written by the same person who wrote Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, you, you've all quoted it. You all know what it says. He says, For I know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That doesn't say all things are good, because they aren't. Paul's thorn was not anything good, but what Paul is saying that God will take those things and use it for our good if we'll allow him. Because I don't care who you are or how careful you are, bad things are going to happen. Things in your life are going to change. And sometimes change isn't good. It's bad. But when they do, it's okay to go with God and say, God, this is terrible. Would you take it away? But then you say, but if you don't, I still know I belong to you and your providence will cause it to work together for my good. I believe that. I trust that. Folks, that's what it means to trust God. And it's that kind of trusting God that brings happiness, that brings joy to a life. So the first one is trust the providence of God. The second one is find strength in His grace. We learn to adjust to life by having faith in the providence of God. And then we 
adjust to life and thus be happy is because we find strength through the grace of God. Paul says in verse 9 that we read, God told him, God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. He said to me, You have enough grace. And we need to understand that, you know, you really can't face the tough, trial, the tough trials in our life except through the grace of God. God knows this feeling that Paul had of a stake in his flesh. Because in Jesus Christ, he had stakes driven into his hands and feet. And a spear into his side. Jesus knows what it's like to hurt. So God knows what it's like to hurt. He, he knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to face the full blast of the fury of Satan. Jesus knows what it's like to spend hours in prayer asking for this problem to be taken away. Only to realize in the end that the problem's not going away. He had to adjust to it. The writer of Hebrews says, we have a high priest. He's talking about Jesus. We have a high priest who will sympathize with our weaknesses because he's tasted it all before. Jesus withstood the full fury. Therefore, he gives us the strength to stand against the full fury of the evil one. And that's what Paul says when he says, my grace, God's grace is sufficient. Together, me and God, we can, un we can withstand anything that happens because of God's grace. And you know, I've seen that. Uh, I've seen it a lot of times, and, and, and you have too. People with incredible burdens able to cope with them because of the grace of God and, and you might be, be in here and you might be thinking I'm not sure I have that kind of strength I don't, I'm not sure I have that kind of grace that faith someone asked D.L. Moody one time the, the evangelist D.L. Moody if he had the grace to be a martyr and his response was insightful here, here's what he said he said, I do not. But if God decides to make me a martyr, he will give me a martyr's grace. That's believing God, believing who God is. I don't have the grace to be a martyr. But I believe if God calls me to be one, along with that, he'll give me that grace. I was reading about a young woman, Kara Tippett. Her and her husband, uh, they were Presbyterians. They moved to Colorado Springs to start a Presbyterian church, to plant a new Presbyterian church in Colorado Springs. And she was all excited about it, and she wanted to take part, and she wanted to be a part. And so she decided that she would write a blog 
<clears throat> she would use her skill as a writer to, to write a blog, and she took a question that was posed by Martin Luther. Martin Luther at one time asked this question. He says, what will you do in the mundane days of faithfulness? In other words, all, all times we're called to be faith are not exciting, exhilarating things. You know, sometimes life's just mundane. Would you agree with that? Sometimes life's just mundane. And so that's what she called her blog. And she intended to write a blog with topics about living with faith through the mundane things of life. Like laundry. Screaming kids. Getting dinner on the table every, every evening. She would write about living by faith through the everyday weariness and joy and joy inherent to motherhood and wifehood. That was, that, that's what she was going to write about. And I think she would have done a really, really good job because it turns out she was a good writer. But just a few weeks after she started her blog, she got diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And her blogs became posts concerning living by faith with a terminal illness. In one of the last posts she wrote before she passed, she said, I do not feel like I have courage for this journey, but I have Jesus and he will provide it. He has given me so much to be grateful for. And that gratitude, that wondering, wondering, W-O-N-D-E-R, wondering over his love will cover us all. So ready to share with the world how to live by faith by being a mother and a wife, she became the voice for living by faith in the face of death. And she did it well. Three years from the diagnosis, she died. And in that three years, she wrote two books. She spoke at numerous churches. She maintained her blog. And Netflix has just recently made a movie of her life of those years. It's called The Long Goodbye, if you want to look at it. Kara Tippett shows the world how God gifts his children with the grace they need, the faith they need at the time they need it. In faith, God will give us all the grace we need. And the third thing, we find peace and surrender. Peace and surrender to God. Paul says, in weakness, I am strong. You find your strength when you surrender and let God's strength work in you. When you let God have your life, when you let yourself be in His hands, and then His strength protects you. His strength keeps you. His strength makes you secure. And then you can say like Paul did, I'm strong. I'm not strong because I'm strong. I'm strong because Jesus is strong. Let God work. Play, trust, struggle, surrender. 
Surrender doesn't mean you give up. Surrender means you give it over and let God deal with it. So, do you want joy and happiness? That's principle number one. Do you want principle number two, three, four, and five? You got to come back. Because unlike a funeral that goes two and a half hours, we're only going to go an hour. All right? If you want to be triumphant over that river that flows and brings with it so much change and with it sometimes disappointment, the first key is adjustment. You need to learn to adjust to life circumstances. You do that, you begin that by moving towards God, by claiming His love, by accepting His great and marvelous grace. You give yourself to God. You know, if, if you're not a Christian, you give yourself to Him as your Lord and Savior. It's the first step. You, you invite Jesus to be your Savior and, and give you that greatest grace of all. The grace that's greater than your sin. And, and, that, and that's where it begins, in giving your heart to Jesus Christ. You admit to God that you need Him. You're not self-sufficient. And you ask Jesus to control your life. And I know you guys have all done that. But if you haven't, that's the place you start. Those of us who are believers, we can renew our vow to the Lord and just simply say to God, fill me with joy and happiness because I'm ready to adjust to life. Maybe a prayer like this. Lord, I will accept your thorn. I will accept the circumstance because I know you're a loving God and I belong to you. Your providence is right. Your love is good and you care about me. And guys, that's where you find victory. That's where you find happiness. And that's the first ingredient for happiness. Adjustment. Let's pray together.